For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by Greg Millen, longtime broadcaster, 600-plus NHL games played as a goaltender, He's the first guy I remember as a St. Louis Blue and probably the reason why I ended up catching with my right hand. I wore 29 because of him. To be able to interview somebody who got me introduced to the position, just amazing. Enjoy. I'm going to set the stage here. It's 1980-something. I think I'm maybe four or five years old, and I go down to the St. Louis Arena with my grandpa to watch the Blues practice. Of course, I'm drawn to the goaltender at one end, and that guy comes off the ice. He gives me a stick, gives me some encouraging words. We take a picture, and now on the other end of the phone is that guy. Greg Mellon, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, it's a, it's a crazy story, isn't it? And uh, I'll share a little bit more uh, with our listeners that that makes it even nicer, really. And, and uh, you know, I got this beautiful note from that very same little guy that became an adult and a, and a professional hockey goalie uh, a number of years ago to reconnect. And, uh, boy, did that it make me feel good that uh, in a small little way, you don't, sometimes don't realize what a stick will do, uh, just passing a stick along to a young person. And here we are, Mike. Uh, I'm the old guy, and uh, you've had a wonderful professional hockey career as a goaltender and played in the National Hockey League, and, and it's quite a story. I tell it many times, by the way. I appreciate it. Now I'm kind of feeling like the old guy myself at this point. I'm 36. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what's interesting about this, though, is that we really came full circle with this when you walked in the locker room when I was playing for the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, about a decade ago. And you sat down next to me, and I think you were just really going through the pregame notes, preparing to do the broadcast uh, with the Leafs, I believe it would have been at the time. And did you have any idea when you sat down next to me about that story? None. Not until you connected with me. I mean, and, and, I, and I actually I do some leadership work, and, I, and, I, and you don't know this, but I often tell a story is that uh, you never know when you're in a leadership position. I mean, even when you're in a position, you know, as a professional athlete, but it can be anything in life. You never really know when, you know, you may influence somebody just by doing something that you do normally every day. And uh, it's a great leadership lesson that I use in my in my speaking sometimes, and something you don't even know, Mike. But it's a situation where you know I didn't think anything of it. I was just you know meeting a cute little little boy that came down to the rink, and I happened to have a stick to give him. And and uh, you know here you are, ended up being a goaltender and playing in the NHL, and then we reconnected. Uh, and in that particular day, I had no idea. I didn't connect the dots until you helped me out with that. And then, of course, to see you play last year in the American League in the, in the final was a real treat for me, too, and uh, kind of made a point of coming down to watch you because, uh, yeah, you, you could play, <laughs> and real well at that. <laughs> that was a really neat moment to, 
see somebody's head peeking in the locker room, and I think that was out, you know, maybe it was, I don't know if it was game three or game six or which one it was, but yeah, it was that was really special to me to just be able to catch up for a little bit in such a, a, an amazing heightened sensory scenario of the Calder Cup finals and you being in Toronto, and you know, you've spent an awful lot of time in the game now, really, it's been your entire life. Did you expect as a kid growing up in Toronto that you would have the opportunity to do th- to do this? No. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of different athletes uh, with your podcast. And, you know, I think most players when they're growing up have a dream. But, you know, for me, I had that dream like every other young person. But I was fortunate enough to have a, a father that really didn't know a darn thing about hockey. So there was never a lot of influence at home. He'd just sit in the corner and watch me play and didn't say anything ever uh, except support me and drive me to the rink along with my mom. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have that support, yet I didn't get the influence of being pushed into it. I, I, it was on my terms. And, you know, all of a sudden one day uh, I just kept playing and ended up playing major junior hockey. And and then all of a sudden I got drafted to, to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And it's, that's sort of the way it felt. It was just I was playing because I loved it. And then all of a sudden, uh, wow, I'm, I'm, I can do this and maybe I should take a run at this. And that's sort of how my childhood went growing up. I think it's changed a lot in today's world, but it seemed like that's the way it was when I grew up a lot more. I love the parallels in our story because it was the same way where my dad would just go grab a bag of M&Ms, sit in the corner of the rink, watch me play. And, and you know, he had played Division Three baseball. He played uh, played hockey growing up. He did high-level racing. So I think he had an understanding of what it was like to play in high-pressure situations. And he just wanted to see me have fun. And it's interesting to hear. It se- Like I say, it seems like you paralleled that as well. Um, but I did, I did get a note doing a little bit of background research before we went into this today from Jeff Merrick, who was pretty sure that when you were a kid, you were on a team that beat the Soviets in Maple Leaf Gardens. Is this true? <laughs> You know, it is. It's it's a really interesting story that's um, <clears throat> somewhat untold. There was a, a touring uh, Russian team back in the day um, that were beating everybody. And Harold Ballard was really upset over this. And um, so he was the owner at the time of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but he also owned the Toronto Marlies, which was their affiliate. And they went all the way from, you know, Pee Wee all the way to to Junior B, which is what we call up here. I'm not quite sure, you know, Junior anyway. I guess it would be the equivalent, uh, you know, in the U.S. And so we had a team of minor midget players that that uh, Harold put together. Now, we had a couple of players that were minor midget age that were playing up. They came back down. John Anderson was one of them. Uh, He's been a great, successful coach. Uh, Mark Napier uh, was another one that was on that team. I was in net. And at the end of the day, uh, we almost sold out Maple Leaf Gardens. It was Hmm. crazy. And uh, and I can never – somewhere downstairs, I don't know where it is, I have a picture of our team with Harold Ballard with his thumbs up uh, because we beat the Russians. And that was something that was uh, a big thing back then when the Russians weren't you know, supposed to be beating anybody, let alone Canadian hockey players. Uh, and so that was, I mean, obviously everybody woke up in 72, but this was after the fact. And, you know, it was quite a moment in, in minor hockey to have something like that happen to you. How old were you? Oh, I would have been, what's, what's minor midget, 15, 14, 15, yeah. Okay. So were you wearing a mask back then? 
<laughs> Pretty funny, Mike. <laughs> yes, I was wearing a mask. Hey, that's an honest Same question. Same one, by the way. That's an honest question because <laughs> this didn't start to happen until later on. I think it's a chirp. On, so. I don't think it's an honest question, but I'll run with it. <laughs> <laughs> so you touched briefly on headed off to, to Major Junior, and you went to Peterborough. And you spent three years there. And you had a coach by the name of Roger Nielsen. And is there anything about him that sticks out in your mind that was memorable? Everything. I mean, Roger was our father figure. Uh, we worked his hockey school in the summer. We stayed at his cottage. He had the video out before anybody else. He had big stats out before anybody else. He was doing chances to score in Peterborough. He had the video out, an old machine that he'd have and cut down video and watch it for us. He was so far ahead of his time. Uh, it's abs- it's remarkable, really. And uh, to me, he was the first person that really introduced video. He was the first person that introduced um, advanced stats. And that was way back then. Um, but more than anything else, he taught us life. You know, with the hockey school, if we didn't make our bed, we didn't get to... Uh, we didn't get to work that day. <laughs> I mean, he that's how meticulous he was in that regard. And in terms of the antics, uh, there were lots of them. He changed rules always in the game. My, I've got a couple of stories. My favorite story was uh, we were in Oshawa, Ontario, and it was an old rink with a very small, small penalty box. And uh, Doug Jarvis, who is the captain of our team, and Doug never swore in his life, uh, got a 10-minute misconduct. And the referee, I'll never forget it, for people that are from Ontario, Canada, they'll remember Lever, and uh, he just passed away, unfortunately, I I believe recently, but he gave him a 10-minute misconduct, and Roger sent the entire team to the penalty box. And they were sitting on each other's laps, three three high. It's the funniest picture I've ever seen. I thought we were throwing the game. I'm in that watching my entire team go across the ice to the penalty box, and they were three deep. And, uh, and then he, Roger was waving his vest back then. Now vests are back. They were, they were a vogue then. He's waving his vest saying, you got my captain, now you can have my team. It was a classic moment. And he just kept giving 10-minute misconducts, and Roger didn't care. Amazing. <laughs> and he had lots of those. I mean, he, he was, uh, of course, you know, before my time, he had Ron Stackhouse, who was the, the defenseman. And uh, when there was a penalty shot, he took the goalie out and let the defenseman. Uh, defend the penalty shot, which changed that rule. And there were lots of others. We ran, we ran every morning at uh, 7 o'clock before school. Uh, he was right into fitness. We had a fitness test at, uh, at, at, at a university, which was just not even heard of back in the day. So he was quite a, quite a guy. And uh, a real. Uh, we lost him far too early because of his contributions to the game. So 77, you're drafted by Pittsburgh. And you ended up playing one more year in the Ontario League, but it was with the Sioux Greyhounds, and it was with a guy named Gretzky. What was that experience like, and how did you end up in Sioux that season? Well, I got cut from every team in the International Hockey League, uh, including the Kalamazoo Wings, which was the last stop. And at Christmas, I came home, and I enrolled in Guelph University and was going to play CIS hockey, which is uh, what a lot of junior players do up in Canada when they're, when they're not making it, uh, or want to extend things. Some come back out from that league now, but they didn't used to. Uh, and I got a call from a general manager in the Sioux that said, uh, would you like to come and play for as an overage at Christmas? And I said, I don't think so. Well, this is the one time my dad did say something. He said, why don't you go have some fun? Let's go up and have a good time. I mean, you know, you're going to stop anyway. So so I did. And uh, 
a guy by the name of Wayne Gretzky was there, and Craig Hertzberg was on defense, and Ted Nolan was up front, and we surprised a lot of people, and I had the great pleasure, and he's now a friend, of playing with, with Wayne Gretzky, who was just, I mean, in, I mean, I used to give him the puck behind the net and say, Wayne, we need one, and he'd pretty much go through everybody <laughs> at his age. It was uh, quite a story, and of, co- of course, every building was full. So it became a lot of fun because it, we became like the traveling road show because Wayne Gretzky was with us. And uh, it doesn't get any better than that when you're a, an overage junior playing in a, in a league when you thought you were all finished anyway and you, all you're doing is having fun. And as you know, Mike, and this for all young goaltenders, if you start really having fun and taking the pressure off you, an amazing thing happens. You stop the puck. It's definitely and, when uh, you play your best. I've always been in that position where... When there's a smile on my face, when I'm carefree, that's when the game's yep. easiest. It's hard to do, but when you get there, boy, it it always seems to work out that way. Uh, it's crazy, but that's the way it is. So then you just go ahead, go to Pittsburgh, and you make the team out of camp. How on earth did this happen? You go from I'm out of hockey to a year and a half later, you're in the NHL. Yeah. You've basically skipped all of minor league hockey, and the next thing you know, you're with the Penguins. Yeah, well, it went really well in the Sioux, so that set the table a little bit. And then Pittsburgh didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot of money, so they had another guy drafted. Gord Laxton was his name. He was a first high pick. wasn't working out all that well for him, and uh, so the window was open. So I went into camp, and there were really only three goalies, if you can imagine, that were competing wow. for the job. One was Dennis Heron, who made the team. And then it was between myself and Gord Laxton. Unfortunately for me, um, I uh, I ended up making it. And then I'll give you a great story. So so now I make the team, and my first start is horrific. I can't even tell you where it is. I, I mean, you know how you forget games. I even forget that, if you can imagine. But anyway, I get yanked into a general manager by the name of Baz Bastien's office. Now, yeah, I can only picture Baz, but he was, a, uh, you know, kind of a old-looking man and kind of scary. And, and he was one of these general managers, and I'm sure you've been in these rooms, Mike, maybe not anymore, where the general manager purposely has his chair elevated above the couch that you're going to sit in. He's so in he, an intimidating position. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so he, already looks, thinking, he already looks like the guy you don't want to go get the candy from at Halloween. Correct. Yeah, because okay. he, he scared the daylights out of you. So I'm sitting in this chair way below him, and I think I'm going to get sent down. And Baz had these great, you know, old school voice and everything, and he said, Kid, Terry Sawchuck would have rolled over in his grave. That was the worst goalie performance I've ever seen. And then he says to me, and you grab the short side like it's home. And he grabbed his swivel chair, and the swivel chair took off on him, and he fell. (laughs) And he ended up (laughs) underneath the desk. (laughs) So So he crawls up, looks at me, and he says, get the F out of here, kid. And I left. I have a feeling if he wouldn't have fallen on that swivel chair, I can almost guarantee you that I would have been in the American Hockey League that day. To this day, I believe that. Yeah, so you had this held over him that you could basically just blackmail him saying, I saw this guy fall off his chair while he's trying to send me down, and he's so embarrassed that he had to keep you. I think that's what happened. I really believe it to well, this day. Sometimes yeah. all it takes is a lucky break like that. I- <laughs> 
and the rest is Amazing. history. I played 28 games that year, and the next year they uh, they traded Denny, and they played 60. So wow. there you go. <laughs> I don't Crazy. have a lot on your time in Pittsburgh, but I did have a question from somebody on Twitter, Esclick42, who yeah. uh, usually I don't ask about other players, but this one's really interesting. Rick Kehoe had four minutes of penalties in 79 games. How on earth did that happen? Good question. Uh, I can't tell you the answer to that. I can just tell you of all the players I played with, he'd be up in the top five in terms of a release. Ridiculous. And... Uh, very, very intelligent goal scorer and a tremendous release. No backswing, just snapped it right off, you know, a stick and bang, he was accurate. Uh, and that's why he scored the way he did. And uh, a real good teammate. He's still in the game. He scouts now professionally. I see him on occasion. He's down in uh, Vegas, I think he lives now. And uh, he was a real good teammate. Uh, old school guy, another one of those guys. And I had a lot of them in Pittsburgh. That, you know, you look at that team, you know, we had Bladen and Lonsbury and Kinderchuk and, and Stackhouse and Greg Shepard and George Ferguson and all those guys were old school guys. So it was, it was the old school. There were a lot of lunches, and, uh, but a lot of lessons as well. They had me crying one time at a team function when Ross Lonsbury, the late Ross Lonsbury, pulled me aside and said to me, you got to be better than this and you can be better. And they lectured me for an hour where my girlfriend, now wife, had to wait with the other wives outside the room. And they had me in tears. Hmm. That was the old school. When you said there were a lot of lunches, I'm, I'm curious how different it was back then, because now we go for lunch. We don't even go. It's at the rink. It's set up for us. It's the perfect nutrition and this and that. I mean, when you guys went for lunch, you probably sat down, ate whatever, maybe had a couple beers. Is that accurate? Uh, the couple of beers is not accurate, but the, the lunch is correct. <laughs> Uh, it was more than a couple of beers, usually. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I, I hedged in the wrong direction with a couple. I should, a couple uh, yeah, of yes, you around. did. Okay. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, it, it, we went to lunch a lot. And did we drink too much? Probably, uh, back in the day, in, in terms of when we did go to lunch. But I can tell you this. The team was very always, the teams that went to lunch like that were very close. They spent a lot of time together. Uh, there was the odd lunch where, you know, the wives had to be called because lunch turned into dinner, which turned into after dinner on occasion. But I can tell you that as, as much as that may not sound right in today's world, and it, and it isn't, uh, back in the day, the one thing that happened during those situations when they did, and they didn't happen that often where it became a long lunch, but when they did, normally there was an issue within the team or something had to be solved, and often it was solved right there. Uh, and that, that's something that uh, I don't know that happens quite as much anymore within teams. They, I, I think they have to solve them different ways. But uh, that was a way that when we were together for lunch, normally something came up, not always, but sometimes it came up where there had to be something solved to get a player going or maybe a player wasn't acting accordingly or not a part of the team or whatever it might be. And uh, you look back on those lunches, they were pretty valuable sometimes. So by this point in Pittsburgh, you've really established yourself as a true number one in the league. You end up in Hartford for three and a half seasons or so, and you keep playing a ton of games, 50, 60 games. And then you end up in St. Louis, and I apologize to anybody in this becoming a very St. Louis-centric podcast, because that's where I'm from, and that's where our story really originates. <laughs> uh, so obviously, I have a lot of things I want to ask about this. But Can I, can um, I, can I tell you just one quick one about Pittsburgh? To uh, I would love that, absolutely. To Hartford? Yeah, absolutely. It's quick. 
But we're at the draft. I was a free agent. I played my contract out. First of all, I had Alan Eagleson uh, after my second year. Uh, the contract was uh, to sign for just over 100000 I was up on the Sioux. I met my old uh, friend of mine who was a criminal lawyer. He said, if you sign that contract, you're out of your mind. So I didn't sign it, uh, hired him, fired Eagleson, and played my option out at 40000 a year. Uh, my contract was 40, 20, 12, 5, a three-way deal. So I was losing all that money to play my option out, which back then was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, still is for most people. And so I played it out with a new lawyer and everything else. We got a, a contract offer from Pittsburgh that we didn't like. So we decided to go to the free agency. At that point, Hartford offered us this new contract with back pay to make up for the money that I lost. We presented it to Pittsburgh because I loved E.J. Johnson, who was a mentor for me in Pittsburgh, a great goalie coach, by the way, and a wonderful person and a head coach at the time. And uh, we gave it to Baz, Baz Steen, the same gentleman, on a Wednesday, never heard from him on Sunday. Larry Plo, who you know well, Mm -hmm. called and said, uh, we want to sign you. So I said to my lawyer, well, we haven't heard from Pittsburgh. I guess they don't want us. So we flew right away that Sunday to Hartford, signed with Wendy and Larry at their house. Monday morning was the press conference. I wake up in the morning. I get a call from Paul Martha, who's the president of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he said to me, I heard you're signing with Pittsburgh or with Hartford. I said, yeah. I said, we gave you the chance for the offer on a Wednesday. He said, well, I never heard that. I said, well, it's too late now. He signed. He said, what if we offer you U.S. Steel? I said, well, that'd be nice, but it's too late. So at the end of the day, Baz Bastine went golfing. He didn't believe us. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or I might have still been a Pittsburgh Penguin my whole career. Wow. So, so that's the Pittsburgh story. There's always a lot of these ones back in the day, so that's how I ended up in Hartford. And back then it was for compensation, so yeah, each team had to pick players. So the, uh, Larry lost the compensation. It was Kevin McClellan, who turned out to be a real good player, and Pat Boutet was the compensation for me that had to go over to over there. So there's a, there's a hockey contract story for you, Mike. <laughs> the more I talk to guys from, from older generations with this, I see that a lot, though, that they used to get really creative with contracts. And, you know, Ron Tugnut was talking about how they're manipulating currencies, and you've been offered shares in a steel company and all these things. And, <laughs> yeah, but it's too late. You know, <laughs> It just kind of makes you think of uh, think of young blood when you're offered a jacket for the Tallahassee Warthogs to sign or something like that, you know. And today it's just dollars and cents. It's all it is. You don't yeah. have all these extraneous things. But no, true uh, enough. So going going to St. Louis now, you know, I I look at myself and people from my era. You know, I was born in '83. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who's born in '82. And you're truly the first person that we remembered in goal for the St. Louis Blues. And for me, that meant. I must have to catch the puck with my right hand like you were. Did you have problems as a kid growing up finding full right equipment like I did? Uh, no. Uh, I was lucky because my uncle was a uh, manager of a sporting goods a wholesale store. So he used to, we used to go in there. There's only one reason I, I catch the other way in baseball. I do way. too. I'm the exact same way. Wow. People think I'm crazy. But how scary is that? Yeah. Do you shoot... <laughs> Do you I shoot did not right-handed? know that, Mike. Do you wow. shoot right-handed when you play forward? As a- I shot right-handed, and I could play goal. One day I'd play goal with one hand. One goal day when I was a kid, I'd play with the other. My dad didn't know what to do, so he asked somebody, what's he going to do? And then the, whoever it was, and I wish I could love to thank him, but 
probably not a lot around anymore. I, I, he said, well, catch with that hand because then you can shoot right. You don't have to switch over. That's exactly the reasoning why I think I ended up. Because one, it was I saw you doing it in the net. But the second aspect of it was that I had already learned how to shoot right-handed. And that's what felt natural to me, to have the glove hand lower on the stick and still be right. able to do that. And lo and behold, puckling, puck handling became something that was really integral to my game. So... You still yep, ended up using, mine. and you still yeah, ended up using a straight stick, though. Did you ever experiment going to a curved stick away from what you had? I tried at the end, and I couldn't do it. Yeah, hmm. so a lot of the puck movement came off my heel ah. when I shot. Yeah, when, because I, I just, I, you know, it was too late to. It didn't feel the lie didn't feel right. That was where I was having the issue in the rebound control. So I just stayed with the straight stick and shot off the heel and. Actually, you know, for doing it as much as I did, I was, you know, I wasn't anywhere like you were or any of the new guys, but I could handle it and backhanded as well. So that was that helped. But um, certainly today's players, and by the way, the goalies today, and you and everybody else, are, you are just so much better than we were. It's not even close. I, I watch goaltenders today, and I just I, I marvel at how how tremendous athletes they are and how good they are. It's it's un it's quite unbelievable actually. Well, we had to keep up with what the players been doing, and you see how skilled yeah. they are, how strong they are. We had to do it. It became a science for us, and that's True. something I noticed though too throughout your career. And and please don't take this the wrong way, but I noticed no. you never had a save percentage above ninety. Now, and that also goes with the 1980s of a run-and-gun style of hockey and how different that's become because you played 600 games in the NHL, were a number one goaltender, great goalie. And by today's standards, we're looking at somebody, if you don't have a, a 915, you're considered to be below average in the league. I mean, that's, yeah. you compare that to what your era was like, it's crazy. Well, I think it's two things. I think that, uh, number one, the game, you know, like you mentioned, the game has changed, the equipment and the, the size of the goaltenders and all of that, uh, and, the, and the style. The goalies are you know, a hundred percent better than we ever were. And, and that's another reason. And, and I think as well, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I was a decent goalie. Uh, was an elite elite goalie? No, I don't think so. Not even close. So that my numbers probably speak to that. <laughs> if the truth be knowing. So I think it's a bit of everything. You first walked into the St. Louis arena. What were your impressions of that place? Because from a fan's perspective, we have this love affair with it as St. Louisans. It would get rocking. It was so loud. But I've also read from the inside and heard from the inside of how really shitty it was underneath when it came to the locker room and some other stuff down there. There's cats and there's rats and all that. What were your impressions well, not, of it? You won't hear that from me. I mean, I had a love affair with it as well. And it started in that, that series when I played for Pittsburgh against against St. Louis and that wonderful series we had where Randy Carlisle jumped over his stick and Mike Zook put it in in overtime, if you can imagine, to win the series. Sorry, Zuki, you might be listening. <laughs> but uh, that, was, uh, that was something. And then, you know, from that day on, and then here for me to end up back there uh, was a real treat. And, and I loved the building. I mean, I loved everything about it. Uh, the fans were absolutely spectacular. They still are, by the way. Uh, yeah, our locker room was down in a little corner, uh, but it, it had character. We didn't have, and we were kind of the ones that, you know, weren't supposed to do anything. And it was us against the world. In fact, the one year with Harry Ornest not paying the bills, guys didn't have right-handed shot sticks. So they had to take left-handed shots and curve them with the torch. 
that is a true story in St. Louis. That's how things were going in the Harry Ornest era for a while. Oh, it's a so good we thing. had, yeah, oh yeah. So we had some real uh, character people in the room to keep it going. Uh, the great story of uh, going to the Final Four in Calgary and Harry canceling our flights, our, our charter home, because he was going to sell the team. So we had no way of getting home. There was a major snowstorm, if you can imagine that time of year in Calgary. And Susie Matthew had to use her personal credit card, and everybody else had to use their personal credit cards to get us home. And here we took them to the Final Four. Had a, well, that was the year Wickenheiser and the Miracle against Calgary mm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And we started flying home at 8 in the morning, and we all had individual flights all the way till 8 o'clock at night. And uh, that's what was going on behind the scenes when the Harry Ornest era was going on and Jack Quinn as the as the president. And so we, you know, were sort of, a, it was us against the world. And that made it even more fun. And that building was a part of that. To be honest with you, it was it was all part and parcel with the with the flavor of how we how we rolled, and it was fun. What's the funny best about time of my life? What's funny about that is that you're talking about not being able to get flights home, and this isn't have anything to do with our team at all. But we had our bus company go bankrupt in Lehigh Valley this year, and we were stranded in Utica because the bus couldn't drive us home because of insurance reasons, and we had to wait for a separate charter bus to come get us after the game and take us back. Wow. <laughs> That's a good one. So this type yeah, of stuff I'm sure still got, I'm sure you got a lot of binder league stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been on buses that have caught fire, sideswiped Volvos, you name it. But uh, Oh, I believe it. I believe I, it. You know, oh, that, wow. that locker room in St. Louis when you were there for those you know, four or five seasons, there's there's two names that really come to mind as fixtures that are still revered within the St. Louis Blues lore, and Bernie Federico, Brian Sutter. Yep. And you know, what was the dynamic in the locker room like in terms of leadership, not just with those guys, but with the other names that were there? We had tons of it. And, you know, led by Barkley Plager, who uh, was probably one of the best coaches I ever had. Barkley had the ability to give you heck, and then you'd feel good about it. <laughs> I don't know how many coaches can do that. And then you had Jock, who was a player's guy as well. And Jock Martin, you know, a young coach that came in and wasn't ready, but certainly knew his stuff. But the leadership started with Brian. Um, and Bernie, period, and one and one A, and you can reverse them depending on the situation. Brian was the gritty guy that you know would put his fist through the drywall to get you going. When Bernie and I were listening to the talk show back in in Norm Mackey's room before the game, and he'd be mad at us because we weren't intense enough. <laughs> that was Brian. Um, he helped Doug Gilmore tremendously start his career, and then and then you had uh, Bernie, who was the the skilled guy. And so you had the gritty guy and the skilled guy. And I used to drive, uh, I roomed with Bernie for five years. He's a dear friend. I used to drive with the three of them, with two, the two of them. And I was in the back seat always. And they'd argue all the way to the airport because the skilled guy, you know, wanted to play one way and the gritty guy wanted to play the other way. And of course, the goalie in the back, what did he do? He'd stir the pot, get him going. It was great entertainment. Most, most rides to the airport. <laughs> They were great friends, and they'd argue the whole way to the airport. It was great. and uh, But, you know, you had Rob Ramage. You had, I mean, my partner, Rick Walmsley, who, who was a really good friend. We went back and forth as, as teammates, you know, a healthy competition. And you can go around the room, and uh, there was lots of leadership. It was a fun, fun group. The best time of my life was in St. Louis. I was lucky to have Rick Walmsley as a goalie coach for a season when I was in the Ottawa organization the first time. And I think legend's about the only word that can be used to describe him. <laughs> The gump. 
Oh, he used to skate us into the ground. And the best part, though, is that once you got over like your third or fourth year in the league, you were his best friend. When you were a young guy in the league, man, he absolutely killed guys. <laughs> oh, did he? I, I didn't know that about the Gumper. And the Gump was in such good shape, too. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of a kind. I, I love Wammer. So well, I'm, I can. Wammer's favorite story about uh, I've got two of them, but uh, the great Ron Caron story. Apparently, one night I was awful. Well, there's lots of those, but this was one particular night, and he we got wind of that Ron, who used to lose it in the press box, ripped the phone off the wall and threw it over, and it ended up in some poor fan's lap. So now we got wind of this, the goalie. So hold, hold on, time, one second. Quick interjection. So my grandpa yeah. used to be official scorer, and oh. he got so. <laughs> I okay. know that. So yeah. one night in St. Louis, he got all pissed off at whoever was running the show, and they just switched over their systems, and he threw his headphones over the balcony, just like you're describing with Ron Corral with a phone. Oh yeah, this time it was a phone. Yeah. Oh no, he's throwing chairs and press boxes. There's legend, and and by the way, I love Ron Corral, the late Ron Corral. He never lied to me once. And that's saying something the way our business was back then. I, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Ron Caron. But when he watched a game, it was torture for everybody around him. He got so involved. So he threw the phone over. And we got wind of it the next day in practice. I can tell you, every time one of us got pulled, as mad as we were, or as upset, or disappointed, or whatever, the goalie partner would come by, tap the pad, and say, way to go, AT&T award. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened every time Wammer and I got pulled. Either I'd say it to Wammer or Wammer would say it to me as we came off the ice. AT&T were nice going. That's the kind of partnership we had. It's perfect. I mean, that's all you can ask for. You're yeah. always looking to be to be friends with your goalie partner because that's the person who understands everything better than anybody else on the team. It's it's awesome to hear you had a great relationship like that. Oh, and, unbelievable. You know, same with Sutter, Federico, yep. everybody else. and. One of those things I wanted to ask about, though, is that you go from Brian Sutter being your teammate to being your head coach in a really short span. How did that transition go over with the locker room and for Brian himself? You know what? He was almost coaching anyway. Um, so I think all in all, it was Brian just being Brian because he was so intense and that way as a captain. And he was transitioning anyway uh, because of the way he was, you know, towards the end with injuries and so on. So the transition was already on. Uh, I've got two stories about Brian. One as a player and one as a, as a coach. Um, the first, the first one as a co as a player, we were in, um, in Minnesota playing the Minnesota North stars in game five, uh, came back in the series. Brian was hurt with a separated shoulder. Brian decided that he was going to play in game five. He had, no business playing in, at all with one arm. Second shift into the game, Brian Sutter comes on the ice and he fights Willie Plett, who was their tough guy. Russell won the fight. That was the end of Brian Sutter. Off he went, shoulder down, separated everything else again. Of course, do you think about that motivating a team? Mm. We went on and just absolutely demolished the Minnesota North Stars in game five and won the series. And that, that was Brian. So he, I mean, we knew that as going into as a coach. So he didn't change at all. He was Brian. You know, some guys couldn't play for him that way, but most could. And uh, the other great Brian story is, uh, and of course he was, a, you know, a good friend as well. So I'm standing in Quebec City and uh, with Brian watching the Quebec Nordiques practice before us on the day of the game, morning skate. And I see uh, 
uh, Brown skating around uh, the ice as a defenseman, and he's he's a black ace. He's 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 upset there. He's the guy that uh, right now is being um, benched by the by the team. And I said to Brian, I said, Brian, we got to get this guy. I mean, he's we are power play suffering. Look at him. I mean, how can how can Quebec not want Brown? I mean, this guy's a player. He's a spectacular hockey player. And Brian just looked at me and said, yeah, you're right. And I was smirked a bit. Well, two weeks later, I'm in uh, New York. He calls me in. Guess who got traded for Brown to Quebec? Me. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote your own ticket. <laughs> Not a good idea. So anybody out there that's in professional hockey, don't suggest that other player's pretty good because you might get traded for him. You never know. Well, I'm, I want to go back really quick to the picture that we took together because one thing I always notice in it is your equipment. And as goalies, we're always nerds about this stuff. And you you're, worse these... than, you're worse than me, by the way. But carry <laughs> I'm on. sure. Yeah. And I, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> it's why I became a goaltender. But you had these yeah. navy blue windlight pads that later became Aeroflex that have taken on different iterations throughout time. But they were really ahead of the curve in terms of innovation back then. How'd you end up in that first set? Because you really were one of the first guys that I know of to be using those really super boxy foam pads. Yeah, Reggie Lemon was the first one to use them. Uh, and I talked to Reggie about them. And I was getting, you know, later in my career. And it was just, the, they were so light. And I thought, wow, these are just so light. I got to try them. And then the interesting part about them, when, when the puck hit them, the puck came off the pad quicker than it went on it. I mean, I could, they'd go right past the traffic. It was crazy. And that's back when, you know, the points were covered tight. And so I would bay, I would boot pucks right by the slot often. And, um, so they worked for me. I, uh, and it, that's how I ended up with Aeroflex and, you know, talked to the guy and we worked on, but it was Reggie Lemelin who was the, uh, the, you know, the, the goaltender that really innovated that and started it. And oh. I got a couple of guys tried it afterwards, and I was one of them. That's yeah. cool. And it's, it's funny how that's come, come around in different circles where, for a while, goalies wanted to have dead rebounds where it didn't go anywhere. It sat in front of them. And then four or five years ago, Henrik Lundqvist, some other guys started realizing, hey, we want the rebounds to come off hot so that they don't just sit in the slot. You were already doing this in the 80s. Probably didn't know any better, but yeah. And and again, the pad were, the pad is is kind of like the pad today where they, they lay flatter on the ice than the traditional pad did. Um, so the, even the design of how they laid on the ice and, 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 and certainly the, the, the weight was so different that it was such a significant difference because of the, you know, the weight of the old school pad that that's what I really liked to begin with and then went from there. Only thing I wanted to ask you also about your equipment was your helmets and your masks. I knew that was coming. <laughs> you're a dedicated combo user your whole career that I can see. Did you ever experiment with a proper fiberglass mask, whether it be with or without a cage? Yeah, I can tell you uh, the story about the cage. Uh, again, now my father was an engineer, so he did know a little bit about you know that sort of stuff. And he said to me always, you're not going to get hurt with a cage mask because, you know, the fitted ones, when I grew up, every time you got hit in the head, you know, you'd usually get cut around the eyes to begin with, with the fiberglass fitted mask. And the other thing that he kept telling me was you can see down better because, you know, with the fitted mask, obviously it was off your eye. You couldn't see, in front, you couldn't see your feet. 
that's how I started with that kind of mask and never switched. And then the time came in my career where when the new mask came out that actually did have a cage and it was fiberglass, I was so far along that, I, you know, how goalies are, I just didn't want to change. So I really didn't even try it because I don't want anything to do with that. I've been doing this for as long as I've been doing it and as well past 10 years. I thought I'm not going to change at this point. This has been good for me. It works. I don't get cut. I can see properly. The bars don't bother me, which, again, now everybody has bars anyway. Um, and so that's how it went pretty much. And then, uh, the, the helmet, uh, I, I used a couple of helmets and then the Jaffa just seemed to, I think it, I had a Cooperall for a while and I don't even know how I ended up with the Jaffa, but ended up with the Jaffa helmet. Uh, I think because it fit the mask, which was a, a Jaffa mask always those, that wire mask was a Jaffa wire mask. So I think that fit the helmet better. And that's how I ended up with the Jaffa helmet, which wasn't very smart because when you got hit in the head with a puck with the Jaffa, uh, you normally you got dinged a bit. <laughs> so, But that's how that all went down. Your last season and a half in St. Louis, there was a little bit of shift, and not just Brian Sutter headed to being the head coach of the team. A guy named, by the name of Brett Hull came into town. How did that change everything in St. Louis? Well, first of all, Brett was the first player that I ever saw and came across that had the composite stick. So I remember, what was the practice rink we used to practice at there with the wire mesh? Brentwood Ice Arena. There you go. So we're in Brentwood, and uh, I, I see the sticks. I say, Brett, like, hey, kid, like, what's going on with the stick? He says, well, watch this. So he d- gives me a lesson, and, you know, Brett, as you know, had, you know, forearms the size of the uh, the arena, and he said, watch how you shoot with this. So he made contact behind the puck almost you know four or five inches easy behind the puck and used the whip of the stick to shoot and I thought wow I mean it's even coming off differently so this was the first time I had I've witnessed and I think he may have been one of the early guys to do it and use it properly was the composite stick so first of all just the way he you know came to St. Louis with new innovation and the way he shot the puck was something for me uh, and then his attitude was so carefree. It was so natural. I mean, he, he cared. He was a competitive per- player, but also so laid back. It used to drive Sutter crazy, and Brian had a way to get to him. You know, he'd scream at him and yell, come on, Holly, I can still hear him, and uh, probably had a lot to do with his success, actually, as a young player, Brian, by staying on him and working at him. But Brett was great because he never used to shoot hard on me. He always used to shoot hard on the other guy. <laughs> we had a deal. <laughs> so I loved him in practice. Most goalies didn't. <laughs> we all know how important it is to have respectful shooters in practice because that's gone completely out the window. It's open season on goalies in practice. How do you guys do it? Because I guess you're protected better. It's huh? Well, we are. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of courage to be a goalie anymore, except from the mental side of things. We are protected well, but man, the puck still hurts when it hits your arms and your shoulders. It does, huh? Yeah. It's just kind of what you do. But to me, as I've gotten older, practice has become half about staying sharp and getting better and half about protecting myself. And there's yep. guys in practice that I know are a hazard. And when they come down, I'll give them the scarecrow. I'll just stand up and I won't move. And well, there's, there's very my few guy of those was Herb guys. Raglan. 
he was your enemy, huh? <laughs> well, he had no idea where it was going, and he had the heaviest shot ever, and he'd come right down the middle and wire it because, he, I mean, it was never the skilled guys, right, Mike? It's never the skilled guys. It's never. Maybe that's never changed. It's the, it's the guys that, you know, are the plumbers that can really shoot that have no idea where it's going that scare the living daylights out of you. You're, you're right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things haven't changed, huh? <laughs> no, but it's, it is getting to the point where everybody's just shooting high. And my deal now is that everybody gets a freebie during, this, during season. You know, you get one freebie that if you plunk me once, whatever, it's a mistake. It's when they become habitual offenders that I start getting angry. Jerry Cheevers, the greatest line he ever gave me. If you're quick enough to get in the way, you're quick enough to get out of the way. Well, they think you're a, nowadays they think you're a coward if you won't stand in there and take them off the head all day long. And it's a good thing that they're finally realizing it's not smart to concuss your goaltenders in practice. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Huh? <laughs> I mean, it's oh, become well. a thing, anyway. friendly fire. So you get to Quebec, and at this point, you know, your career seemed like it was starting to wind down. You had those great years in St. Louis. But I got a great story from Ron Tugnut about this, that when you got to Quebec, it was an eyes-wide-open moment where the team wasn't very good, and it seemed like you really weren't too enthused about what was going on there. Is that true? Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit first. And you've just been away from your family, so you know this drill oh too well. When I was about to go to Quebec, I didn't go right away. And we even whispered Kirk Flood's name into the mix the issue was I had a contract done with, with St. Louis mm. verbally. It had nothing to do with not wanting to go to Quebec, which everybody thought it did at the time, and I get that. So they reneged on the contract. So when I went to Quebec, I said, well, I'm not coming until we get this contract done because we have a deal done. I mean, it's signed. <laughs> so that's what started that mess. And then Marcelo Boo, the owner, I'll never forget it ended up in our door in St. Louis with kids paraphernalia, all kinds of Quebec Nordique pajamas and everything, <laughs> trying to talk me into coming to Quebec. <sighs> and then, you know, the long and the short of it is we ended up getting a deal done. And then I went to Quebec and of course, without my family, which was, with, was difficult. And you know that you just been through it. It's a really hard the thing about athletes. You know, when you start traveling around and nobody will feel sorry for us, I know, but without your kids and your family and your wife's at home and you're miles away and you have a young family, it's not easy. It's harder on the girls and not easy on us either that are away from our family. And so I wasn't loving that part of it in Quebec, not knowing the language at all either and everything. But the worst part was the team had 46 points that year at the end of it all and yeah I got there and realized that you know I why the heck did they trade for me like I'm not going to be able to put up you know put my finger in the dike here like this is this is just they're not even close and they're not going to be close for a long time and I'm getting towards the end and I want to win like everybody else but I got to try and help the team, but realize very quickly that I don't think I could really do much there to help. That's a tough scenario when you go away from your family, because like you say, I lived it for four months. And what people don't realize is that it's the everyday connection with your kids and with your family that you don't get. And it was incredibly difficult on my wife because she'd never had to basically be a single parent before when it came to cooking everything else. That was stuff that I did. But I didn't get to see my kids. I didn't get to interact with them. I got 20 minutes a day on Skype. And it's yeah. so difficult to do that. And, and in, during your time, I mean, you couldn't even see their face unless they sent you a picture in the mail, I'm sure. I can't no, imagine right. what it was like. So. No, no it was, it's, it's something that we don't talk enough about for players. 
and uh, you know, especially you know, you watch your situation, Mike, in the you know, in the American League when you're going there, and then up to the top, and then back down again, and families are the ones that, that suffer in these situations. And I don't think we do a good enough job. Uh, I really don't, in terms of two things, especially in the in the in the American League, and even in the coast, is you know, preparing players properly for when they're done. And also working on things like that so they can't be traded around like horse traders throughout, you know, the year the way they are. And I know it's a business. I get it. But this up and down thing, I mean, it's, sometimes it's just not necessary. It gets carried away. Well, and, you know, like you said, too, you, you think you come to an agreement with somebody and when that agreement doesn't end up being honored, you know, you think about it. Why? Why am I doing this? Why? Didn't I make sure I had a no trade clause? Would they have even given it to me? There's all these things that can enter your mind. But ultimately, money can't make up for those experiences with family. And that's something that we may not talk about enough either because we do make a lot of money. But guess what? That does not equal happiness in any way when it comes to family. And it's so easy from the outside to say, oh, geez, you're making however many hundred of thousand of dollars. Suck it up. Well, guess what? Like, I can do other things in life. I have yep. a degree. I have options. I had options even before this season of what I could possibly want to do. And I chose to go do this with my family. It was an experience for my family. And it, it's so easy to just say money, money, money. And that's not the whole story when it comes to this stuff. Well said. Well said. And, and we probably don't, you know, we don't talk about that enough, even within players, and let alone within management in the game. And how that affects, and and I know they it's a business, and they always you know the good organizations get it. A lot of organizations, uh, I can tell you what managers do. They say, well, that's just business, and then they go home and they look themselves in the mirror and they say, well, I, I had to do that because it's business. Well, that's that's a cop out. And yeah. It happens a lot, and it happens a lot. Well, it also uh, gets around too, and true it's enough. something that is yeah, starting to enough. catch up because I think we're at the point now in hockey where, for the most part, most teams are managed well, they're managed by good people who try to do the right thing for the player, it'll keep them in the dialogue. And when that doesn't always happen, it gets around the league pretty fast now. Yeah, interesting. And it should. And it's good to hear good to hear that it's good to hear that it's getting better and it's also good to hear that it gets around and keeps people accountable. So things started to kind of trail off towards the end of your career here in terms of games played, everything else. You know, you went to Chicago, you're in New York for a bit, San Diego, Maine, Detroit. Really, all I, what I wanted to touch on, though, really was you had a bit of experience with Mike Keenan. Did you get much much of a feel for what it was like to play for Iron Mike? Did you have to bring that up? I didn't have to. <laughs> I guess times. what I can say, there, there were certain aspects of Mike that made him a very good coach. Um, that, and then you could learn things from Mike. There were other aspects of Mike that uh, weren't my style, certainly, and a lot of players' style. Um, you know, it, it's, it was an interesting time. I mean, you get Mike away from the uh, Zamboni era, and uh, Mike is a, is a completely different person. You get him back in the day, I don't think you can say the same anymore, but back in the day when the arena air and the Zamboni exhaust started, something happened. And um, I'll leave it at that. How's that? Well, one good thing that did come, yeah. One good thing though, that did come out of your time in Chicago that I found out about was that you actually did a demo tape with Darren Pang, where he was doing play-by-play. You were doing color commentary, and lo and behold, you both end up in broadcasting. Well, Darren and I, uh, I was getting you know 
throwing up the press box and Darren was there already uh, hurt for the most part of the time. And, and so, yeah, we would hide way up high uh, up top and um, start to work on our work. And Darren would usually be the play by play guy. I'd be the color because I was so horrible at play by play. Darren was a little better and uh, we would practice some broadcasting and then Lisa Seltzer, who was the producer who ended up with uh, network producing for a long or directing for quite a while, she uh, did a demo tape for us, uh, which was very kind of her. And then the reason I got into broadcasting initially was because John Shannon, who is now on air in Canada, but was has been a long time executive in the in, in the TV business, said to me uh, as a player, you know, you should think about broadcasting when you're done. So that sort of put a, planted the seed, and then I had the demo tape, and uh, that's how that sort of started. And then, you know, like what often happens, uh, I did have an option to go back and play in Philadelphia in the American League and probably end up up top at some point. But we had our fourth child on the way, and Ottawa had a television offer. Uh, because of that demo tape and also Bob Gainey had a goaltending coaching offer so I weighed all my options out and decided it was time to stop so that's how that went and now you've spent the the second half of your career in broadcasting and has it been nice for you to be able to transition to something that was still so much involved in the game yet not having the daily pressure of being on the ice yeah, I feel like I'm the uh, luckiest guy in the world, really, for the way the, the you know my career ended and way it started. Now, I mean, it's it's always difficult to stop. And if any athlete tells you it's an easy transition, I would suggest that they're probably they're little Pinocchios going on, and their nose is growing a little bit. It's it, it's it's tough on everybody. Everybody has different degrees of uh, difficulty with it. Uh, and I was, I had the same, you know, miss, you miss the guys, you miss the athletics, uh, you miss the challenge. But then I was fortunate enough to do two things when I got it. I worked for Bob Ganey as a goalie coach. I don't know how you couldn't do this in this day and age, but I worked for Bob Ganey as a goalie coach in Minnesota slash Dallas and then started my television career with Ottawa. So I had two jobs when I, when I got out of hockey, which is awfully fortunate. And then I can remember trying to make a decision and Bob said to me, you know, you don't want to move your family. Uh, you know, you have four children. They're all young. I think you could, you know, and with my wife's help as well, pick broadcasting instead of coaching because I didn't want to move all over the map. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. Uh, I mean, I guess we're 27 years now doing this or something crazy. And uh, it's just been a great ride. It's been uh, a lot of fun. I've worked with some incredible colleagues along the way and had the luxury and honor of calling some pretty fun games and some Olympics and things. So it's, it's been a real, uh, a real lucky, lucky opportunity. And it's, it's been a lot of fun, this ride. Could you ever imagine that you would have ended up on hockey night in Canada? Uh, probably not. Uh, no, uh, I don't think any of us do. It's, it's an honor that, uh, and it's an honor because it's a brand that goes so far back. And, you know, I was able to work with, you know, some of the greats like Dick Irvin and, and uh, you know, Don Whitman. And, and, and of course, now just recently, Bob Cole. I just finished with his last game, which was such an honor. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's like working, you know, for the Montreal Canadiens or working for the Toronto Maple Leafs or, you know, any of the, you know, the original six teams in the NHL with the, 
you know, Detroit or New York or anybody like that, Boston, the, the tradition that's involved with the team is, is, is special. And that's what, to me, is what is so special about Hockey Night in Canada. The challenge now is that there are, there's just so many games on the air. And although Saturday night's still very, very important in, in, as for Canadians, we've got to be very careful that we still protect the brand within the networks. And I think that's a challenge with the amount of games going on. And also, uh, you know, it's difficult when the brand changes, you know, locations. And sometimes it's difficult to understand how important that brand is and how important it is to protect it. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, your son Charlie ended up this year playing some professional hockey games. And I know how much of a battle it was for him to get to that level, but how much enjoyment did you have as a father seeing your son just play the game, get to that level, become a professional? You know, it's interesting. Um, a goalie parent is horrible, by the way. So I think any dad that's a goalie parent will know that out there. It's the worst because you you live, you go up and down with, with, with your son playing goal or daughter because not because of you just don't want them to be upset after the game and you want them to try you know you know how badly they want it and when things don't go well you just feel so horrible for them so that's hard that part i won't miss believe me uh the, the great thing about about charlie playing and i wish he wouldn't have played goal in many ways but you know he, i'm just really proud of him the way he you know he just stopped he's starting a new career seems to be doing really well with the transition which i'm thrilled about which was always my one of my biggest concerns and i've told him that how are you going to do when you get out of this but to me it was his journey and just being uh proud of the way he you know displayed character the way he treated people throughout his journey and that's that to me as a parent is what it's all about. The actual making it or playing professionally, I mean, yeah, that's great. Uh, it's only great because that's what he wanted to do and he had a love and a passion to do it. What to me was really great as a father was, was watching how he reacted to a ton of adversity and the way he stayed with it and kept staying with it and, and continued to battle adversity. And sometimes the justice was not there. Sometimes it was deserved but just the way he, he dealt with all of that. And, you know, Mike, I have a great deal amount of uh, respect and, and, and for you as well, because I know that it wasn't an easy ride. And uh, you always uh, treated it with class and dignity, and you battled. And that's something that, uh, you know, we don't give, we don't recognize that enough with a lot of players that, that, that may not be NHL players like, you know, 60 game guys a year for goalies, but have battled through it. And you're one of a very few groups of people that have made it to that level. And that's what I tell Charlie. You're one of very few that, that have been able to say that you play professional hockey. And it's quite an honor and it's even a better accomplishment. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.